As you can see on the screen, it's page 1220, the first letter to Peter. Uh, first letter of Peter. And uh, it's the first 12 verses, so page 1220 in your Bibles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by these who have preached, preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, good morning, everybody. For those who don't know me, um, my name's Cameron Munro. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here uh, at the Bay, uh, and it's great. I'm excited, actually, this morning. Uh, we get to dig into um, one of my favourite books of the Bible. I don't know if it's PC to actually have favourite books of the Bible. I know all scripture is God-breathed, but 1 Peter, for me, uh, it has a special place. And hopefully, as uh, we spend this time over this term... I'll explain to you a little bit of why I actually think 1 Peter is really important for us uh, in our uh, current situation. One of the privileges I have uh, is I get to hang out with all the smart people uh, like Colin uh, and all the great philosophers of the world like this one, uh, my favourite guy, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, otherwise known as the Man in Black. Uh, from The Prince's Bride, if you don't know, he has... Uh, one of the most profound statements uh, is made in modern philosophy. 
Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Life is pain, Highness. It's true, isn't it? It's true. Life is pain. Not all of it, but none of us escape it, do we? Life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Now, there's kind of general suffering, general pain that just comes from living in a world that is broken, a world that is fallen. The pain of sickness, the pain of death, the pain, um, the pain of pain. There's also a more specific kind of suffering that comes from the unwise and perhaps even sinful choices that others make or we ourselves make. But then there's also suffering and pain that is particular for us who are Christians. If you're a Christian here this morning, maybe you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's pain that's caused by people's opposition to what we stand for, for who we belong to. There is persecution that Christians have faced for as long as there have been Christians. But there's also questions, questions that arise from our faith when things happen to us from the first two categories, those general and specific kind of sufferings that are common to all. But for us as Christians, we're provoked to actually ask, why? And so this morning, I want to, as we start 1 Peter, explore with you the question of how is it possible not only to survive, but to thrive in a world where life is pain? Our society has some answers. Let me give you a few. One is just to limit your expectations. Just don't go in expecting very much and you won't be disappointed. You know, someone once said that your role in life was to find a tolerable level of pain and call that happiness and then everything will actually be okay. But we long for things to be different, don't we? We long for it to be different. Sometimes it comes very acutely. I can remember standing... Uh, at a graveside at a funeral and just being hit by the wrongness, the wrongness of what we were experiencing. C.S. Lewis picks this up in a book that he wrote, a little essay really that he wrote called The Weight of Glory. I've printed this out for you so you don't have to panic if you're a note taker. It's in your notes. He says, a person's physical hunger does not prove that a person will get any bread. You may die of starvation, but surely a person's hunger does prove that they come from a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. Hunger doesn't make sense if there's nothing to eat, if there's no need to eat. So he then draws a connection. He says, in the same way, though I do not believe my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some will. That longing, that sense of there's got to be more than this, it makes no sense. Why is humanity wired in that way? Why are we craving for there to be something more if there is nothing more? Why is that there? We can limit our expectations. 
What else can we do? We can self-medicate. Our society does this brilliantly. Uh, We have television. We have computer games. We have alcohol. We have drugs. We have all sorts of things. We can numb the pain and distract ourselves away from the pain in our life. Or we can find, perhaps, a purpose to pursue. And some of the customary kind of things that people do here is they find their work and they call it a vocation. It's my calling and they pour their life, their soul into it. For some of us, that's our paid employment. For some of us, that's our our family. For some of that, that's the pursuit of status, the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of experience. But the fact is, is that there is something that trumps every single time. If you're a 500 player, you know that this wins every time. What is the ultimate joker? What is the ultimate trump? Death. King Solomon, thousand years BC, he recognized it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, I hated all the things that I'd toiled for under the sun. I must leave them to someone who comes after me. And yet who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. You will leave everything to someone else. All your life's achievements will come to an end and someone else will pick those up and you don't know whether they're going to do it well. You don't know whether they're going to do it badly. You don't know, as Solomon did, whether they'll be wise and full. Yet I've no, I've, yet they will control over all the fruit of my toil in which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Does Christianity have better answers? Does the resurrection actually make a difference? Or are we just adding another another option to the list that really has the same kind of shortfalls? Does the death and resurrection of Jesus make a difference? We're going to explore that from the opening 12 verses that Mike read for us from 1 Peter 1. Have your Bibles open. Make sure that anything that I say lines up with what Peter wrote, what the Spirit inspired him to, um, because that's where the authority is, not up here. Um, We're going to explore that. Four headings. I've given up on alliteration. I was tired of Colin having a dig at me, really. No, (laughs) not at all. Not at all. We have a purpose that motivates. We have a hope that lasts, a perspective that transforms, a relationship that sustains. And then, to finish it off, one point of application, an invitation to explore. So let's dive in. A purpose that motivates. Now, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, original name, quick quiz, what was Peter's original name? Simon, who was his dad? Jonah, come on. What was his occupation? He was a fisherman, yep, here he is. I don't know what he looks like, but that's what... I think that was Rembrandt or someone thought that he looked like that. This guy is writing a letter to a whole bunch of churches. He's writing from the city of Rome, we think. Uh, at the end of chapter 5, he sends greetings from Babylon. Uh, most theologians think that that's his code word for Rome. Uh, he's having a dig at Rome, calling it Babylon. Um, and he's writing just before the major persecutions break out under the Emperor Nero. You know, the guy that burnt down half the city and thought it was convenient to blame the Christians. Uh, and so early 60s, he's writing to a bunch of churches through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, okay, which we would call northern Turkey. Okay, 
These are Roman provinces. I believe he's writing to churches that are substantially not Jewish. He's writing to Gentile churches and he addresses them at the start of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Theology 101, he would get a big tick. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity in action. We'll talk about that. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter is writing to a group of people that he, he tells them something that they feel deeply in themselves, I'm sure, that they are not at home. They're exiles. Not that they've been kicked out and forced to move by persecution. They possibly were born and bred in the very cities that they lived. But their allegiance to God through Christ has meant that they are not at home. Maybe some of you could recognize that. Maybe you live, you know, five kilometers away from where you were born. But your allegiance to God through Christ means that there's a point where you actually recognize that this is not where you belong. Peter is writing to exiles, exiles scattered through these Roman provinces. But they're not just random exiles. They are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Not that God just knew that they would respond, not an abstract knowledge of a fact, but in the very way that we know people personally. God knew us. He knew those who are his. He determines those who are his. Scripture is clear that God does not merely respond. He initiates. So when we think about the whole thing of who made the first move, God invites us to dance. We accept his invitation. God initiates, we respond. And God has chosen us according to his purposes he's chosen us by the sanctification of the holy spirit that's a very fancy word that means the holy makingness of the holy spirit does that work for you oh yeah anyway that wasn't scripted the holy makingness uh if you're going to use it i'd hope you would attribute it to me um but sanctification is the idea of actually being made holy being set apart and holiness in scripture has two kind of aspects one is the kind of moral perfection and purity kind of holiness and we're we're familiar with that but there's another kind of holiness that maybe is a little less obvious to us a holiness that means things are set apart for particular uses so for example, on a very mundane level, if you look over there, on the chair next to where I was sitting is my keep cup. Okay, that cup is holy to me. Okay, I have set it apart. No one in the family dares use my cup. It is my cup and it is for my purposes, which is basically for keeping coffee. Okay, it is my purpose. It is holy unto me. Okay, the Holy Spirit doesn't take a keep cup the holy spirit takes a people and sets them apart for god's purposes god chose them beforehand the spirit sets them apart and what is that purpose to be obedient 
to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Now, sprinkled with his blood, that's a gross image, isn't it? But if you're taking notes, go back into Exodus 24, when the Old Testament people of God uh, swore to keep their side of the covenant, they were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. They were set apart for obedience. And that's exactly what Peter's drawing upon, but not the blood of sheep and goats, the blood of a bull, but this is the blood of Christ that sets us apart, that gives us a purpose. And so we see that as Peter greets these ch- this church or these churches, we have an identity, chosen exiles. We have a status with God. We are set apart for his purpose. We have a purpose, and we're going to unpack that throughout the book. We're going to come back to it. But we are given something unique. It is received. It is a gift that comes to us from God by grace. Not something that we have to strive for, something that is ours. But that's not the only thing he gives us. He gives us a hope that lasts. This is one of my favourite verses in Scripture, one of my favourite verses in 1 Peter. So if if you're a memory verse kind of person, this is one to memorise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. Literally, he has rebirthed us. He has born us anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, an inheritance kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God has rebirthed us. We have a new birth into a living hope. And that living hope is described as an inheritance that is imperishable, unspoiled, unfading. Peter is drawing a contrast with everything else in this creation. Everything in this creation, everything in this world, it will perish, spoil and fade. But what Peter is saying God has given us can never perish, spoil or fade. That is the gift. That is the new hope, the living hope, the inheritance that comes to us through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you set your heart on? One of my um, favourite books and then my favourite movies. You know who this guy is? Okay. This is Smeagol and he's holding the one ring. And if you know anything about the Lord of the Rings, the, the one ring consumes him. It devours his heart and mind and twists him. See, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, the book, didn't write the movie, uh, but he recognised that we are all by nature consumed by what we treasure. We have something that, like Smeagol's one ring, lies at the centre of our very being. It motivates and drives our actions. It gives us meaning and purpose. And we kind of, we build hope on it. So if family is your thing, what motivates your morality? Well, what is good for my family is good. 
What is bad for my family is bad. What gets in the way of my family thriving needs to be opposed. I will make choices. So it directs how you use your time and your money. It directs your hopes and your fears. What do you then lie awake thinking about? You're worrying about whether your, your daughter in the year two is going to struggle at the NAPLAN in year 11 or whatever. You know what it's like. You, you obsess about all these different things because that's where your hope is. Maybe it's not family. Maybe it's, maybe it's work. Maybe it's your financial portfolio. What is your one ring? What is the treasure upon which your heart gazes? What are you locked onto? Often those things aren't bad things, but often they're good things that get in the way of the best thing. And Peter here is saying this inheritance that God gives us, never perish, spoil or fade, it is kept for us. And not only is it kept for us, we are kept for it. We are shielded by faith. Not faith itself as an abstract idea, but the one in whom we trust. The one on whom we have set our faith. We can have absolute confidence that God will see us through. Why? Well, Peter ties us to this. When he says that this inheritance comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's not saying that the cross, the death, didn't matter. He's viewing it as a package, but he's emphasizing the resurrection. And what is the promise of the resurrection? That God delivers his people. God delivered Christ from the grave into new life, into glory. And as he promises that for Christ, he promises it for us. You'll see again and again and again in 1 Peter that we walk the trajectory that Christ walked through suffering into death, but to glory. As Jesus walked, so we walk. But this is the promise that as Christ was delivered, we will be delivered, that our inheritance is sure. What is that inheritance? We'll come back to that in a couple of points. But let's move on to number three. We have not only a purpose that motivates, not only a hope that lasts, but a perspective that transforms. Now, Peter was under no illusions. There are people out there who will preach a Christianity that says, uh, God wants you to be healthy, healthy and happy and everything to go well for you. You've heard this, yes? Peter doesn't preach that kind of a gospel. That's not what scripture teaches either. What's he saying? He says, in this, this inheritance, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says we will face pain. We will face trials. But the hope we have transforms our pain. The hope we have and the promise of the resurrection says God is in control. God is at work. God has a purpose. He is working for your good. 
Some say to speak of God's purpose in pain and suffering actually just makes things worse. Can I just say, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you can't articulate, ah, this is exactly what God is doing, doesn't mean that God has lost control. Because we know his end goal. We know what he is aiming at, that we would reflect the likeness of the Lord Jesus himself. We know the Father's heart. He gave us Christ. Is he going to sell us short on anything else? We know the love that he has for us. We know his wisdom and power that through the most horrific event, the betrayal and judicial murder of the Lord of life, God brings a wonderful victory. If Christ's suffering can be redeemed, can be used so gloriously, what makes us think that God can't use our pain? I was reading in the the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, uh, a funny little story where once again the people of Israel are whinging. They're really good at whinging. Um, we're not like them at all, are we? And they want meat. They're, they're really cranky. They're bored with this kind of bread from heaven manna stuff. Uh, we want to go back to Egypt. You know, manna burgers, we're sick of them, all those kind of things. And God says, not only are you going to eat meat one day, you're going to eat it every single day for a month until you're sick to death of it. Sounds like a parent, doesn't he? And Moses is there going, where are you going to get all the meat? Uh, And there's this great phrase where, where God just has a cranky moment with Moses. And he says, is the Lord's arm too short? Do you think I haven't got this? I delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. Do you think I can't give you meat for a month? I raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Do you think I can't use your pain and suffering to bring blessing? Is the arm of the Lord too short? God is at work. The hope that we have on the certainty of the resurrection is the promise that transforms our pain. It tells us that our pain, it tests us, it refines us, it purifies us. It shows that our faith is real with the result at the end that we will receive praise and glory and honour from God. As the Father welcomes us in, And says, well done. Well done. Look at what you have done. Look at what I have done through you. The praise that is promised is for us from him. Think about how good that will feel. I don't know about you, but I kind of grew up. This is a moment of personal vulnerability here. Um, My parents were... Great parents, but they weren't necessarily the the parents that always really told you, well done. They weren't the parents, they they, they didn't put us down, they didn't do anything. But but think about the power, for parents, think about the power that's in your hands. 
But think about what it feels like where someone that you love as much as you love your parents says, well done. That is so good. And this is the God of the universe who promises that while we suffer for a little while, he is at work and he will welcome us into glory with words of praise and honour. This man, the Admiral Jim Stockdale, was shot down, he's an American, shot down over North Vietnam in 1965 and was a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton, notorious prisoner of war camp from 1965 through to 1973, one of the longest uh, stints of imprisonment endured by any American um, uh, prisoner of war. He was tortured more than 15 times forced to wear vice-like heavy leg irons for two years and spent four of seven years in solitary confinement in total darkness. He survived when so many others died. When he was asked how, what he said was, I never lost faith in the end of the story. He confronted reality Hanoi Hilton, but he never lost faith in the end of the story. Now we could sort of say, what reason did he have to believe that he would be freed? But brothers and sisters, we have every reason. We have the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as a guarantee that the end of God's story will come true. It's amazing. Amazing certainty. Let's keep moving. Not only do we have a purpose that motivates, a hope that lasts, a perspective that transforms, but a relationship that sustains. I mentioned that inheritance that I'd come back to it. This is this part. Peter writes and he says, though you have not seen him, that's the Lord Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the end result of your faith. The salvation of your souls. What is our treasure? What is our inheritance? It's Christ. It's not stuff. It's Christ. It's a relationship with his father through him that we can call him our father. I used to think of heaven as an eternal ski field. You know, you never have to catch lifts or wait in lines. You can just ski your life away. No. No. Heaven is face-to-face communion with God. I'm sure if I want to go skiing, God will make that happen. That's fine. But John Piper asked, if we got to heaven and Jesus wasn't there, would we be disappointed? I think so often we conceive of all the gifts, but we lose the wonder that the greatest gift is the giver himself. Christ The Father, the Spirit who now dwells in us and brings us the Father and the Son. I think sometimes we're what you call an evangelical church. If you like labels, if you don't, just forget I even said that. One of the problems about evangelicals is that we can be a little bit hung up on uh, all the rational arguments and the intellect. Can I just say, 
we need to recognise that while the intellect is brilliantly important, God speaks to us in logical and rational ways, that we can know him truly through his word, but it just doesn't stop there. Peter here speaks of inexpressible and glorious joy. Is that a phrase you would use to speak of your relationship with God? Even though you have not seen him, you love him. I want to encourage you about music. I have a friend who's a great musician. And he said, Cameron, you can, you can think a thought, you can feel an emotion, but the great gift of music is it lets us feel a thought. It actually involves a much deeper level of our being. It takes truth and involves our heart and our mind and our will. Maybe you're not really a singer. I've, I've met lots of people who don't like singing. One of the great things I love about night church, if you ever go and you stand up the back, um, I'm sorry, I'm not going to offend anyone. I'm sorry if I do. Some, there are some guys there who tune is optional. You know, you know those kind of people? Okay, but they sing and they love to sing and I love that they love singing and it encourages me. It encourages me because their whole being is praising God and they actually don't care what I think or what anyone else thinks. They just sing. Can I encourage you, if you may be one of those people like I'm tone deaf, I don't like singing, I hate to think what that person sings. Remember there's God that you're singing to and they, they don't matter. Music is a great gift. And not only music, God encourages us to get into his word. There's a, there's a word, we, when we think of meditation, we often think of you know, the Buddhist meditation, the whole emptying yourself and chanting the same phrase again and again and again. Meditation is a Christian idea, but that's not Christian meditation. Buddhist meditation is emptying. Christian meditation is filling. It's the... One person said it's the handmaiden of prayer. It's the bridge that takes us from the word to prayer. So you spend time in God's word and then you reflect deeply. Deeply spend time reflecting on what you've read, what God has been teaching you, asking him to show you more of himself in it. And as you feed on him in his word, as his spirit opens your heart, your mind, he will give you an inexpressible and glorious joy. He will transform us and take it from our heads to our hearts as well. It's not head bad, heart good. It's head and heart and the whole of ourselves. This is what he gives us. And as we live in that relationship, it strengthens us. It sustains us in our lives. So let's bring it to a close. An invitation to explore. I love this last little bit, these last three verses from verse 10. Have a look at this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was coming to you, to us, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit and Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. These prophets... They are getting into the word and they're devouring it, trying to find more of what God is actually telling us. The prophets, the prophets can't get enough of God's word. 
And it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but us when they spoke of the things that have now been told to us by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I love this last little phrase. Not only the prophets, they're so excited about the word, but the angels long to look into these things. And we have them in their fullness. How do you go? How do you go with inexpressible and glorious joy? Do you find the the pain of life overwhelms you? That perspective that I spoke of, the hope, it just seems so distant. You wouldn't be alone. William Law, who was a a Christian a number of centuries ago, that's why he speaks like a stuck-up English person, sorry, um, because he was. He said, People are well inclined to religion that receive instruction of piety with pleasure and satisfaction, often wonder why it is they make no great progress in the religion they admire so much. The reason is this. The religion lives only in the head. Something else has possessed their heart. The invitation to explore is to recognise the wonder of the grace that has been given to us in Christ and to set aside time to build, to understand, to plumb the depths of what Ephesians 3 tells us is unplumbable. The dimensions of God's love, how wide, how high, how deep, how long, and to know that it is beyond comprehension. We can gaze into God's riches of grace in his gospel eternally and never hit the bottom, never get behind it. There is always something more. As we explore 1 Peter, my prayer is it's an opportunity for us to come to understand, to come to know with an inexpressible and glorious joy the riches of his grace to us. That we might, we might have a hope that transforms the present. It doesn't make all the pain go away. It doesn't, it's not a magic band-aid that Put some smile, you know, the car park miracle where you've had the terrible week, you walk into church and everything's fine. No, no. Peter knows that life as one of God's people, it shares a lot of the pain and it has extras. But God in his riches gives us everything we need that we might not only survive, but flourish because we have a hope a glorious future that is breaking into the present through the work of the Spirit in our hearts, in our lives now, that we might live lives that bring him honour and glory in all things. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a, a phenomenal word, a great encouragement that you through your spirit provoked Peter to write to Christians 2,000 years ago. But through the same spirit, Father, it is your word to us now. Father, help us to set our hearts not on the stuff of this world that perishes, that spoils, that fades, not on earthly hopes, but on the eternal, the eternal hope that is ours in Christ, that we will be with you. And that you will wipe every tear from our eyes. 
The old order of things will pass. And Father, you will make all things new. And until that day, Father, we do long. We do long wondering how long. How long, O Lord? And we ask, Father, that you, you would come back. You would make all things new. And you would bring us to yourself in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.